0: This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking and inspire them to teach with joy. Joining me on the Becoming Educated podcast today is Hannah Wilson. Hannah is a dynamic educational leader who is a passionate diversity, inclusion and equality advocate. An ethical leader whose vision and values lead. She has spent 18 years as a teacher, including as the executive head teacher of Aureus School and Primary School. The school received national recognition for their work, including Values-Based Education Schools Award. She is now a teacher trainer at the University of Buckingham. Amongst all of this, she created an annual event called Diverse Educators and is the co-founder of WomenEd, a grassroots organisation that connects, develops and empowers aspiring and existing female leaders. Hannah, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: The pleasure's all mine, I can assure you. So just to, to start off the interview, can we can we use, start with the gold standard interview question and just give us a whistle-stop tour of your career to date, please?
1: Sure. Um, forwards or backwards? Which way, which way do you like the journey to go?
0: Uh, whichever way you want to.
1: Okay. Um, I trained to teach English down in Kent um, 18, 19 years ago. Um, and then I moved to London and I spent six years... Um, working in one school and I went my way up to assistant head um, and it was a turnaround school. So I've, I've worked in several turnaround schools in the same um, trust. I got pinged across to become deputy head in a different school. And it was fa- that was a fascinating turning point in my career because the schools were like two and a half miles apart, but you could not get different contexts. Like the communities were so different, and I had to completely change how I taught English. It was really, really, really interesting. Um, and then I went to work at head office for a year, and I had this brilliant year where I was head of professional learning for forty-two schools. It's so like three and a half thousand staff. I wasn't school-based. I organised the annual conference. I ran all the kind of the coordination of the teaching school activities. That's when I bid for the money with the DFE and ran the diversity programs. And it was just a real privilege to have a year like being the gateholder and kind of setting the vision for CPD. And that then led me to a lot of external networking, which is when I met the CEO, I then got the headship for. um, And I wanted to leave London. I'd been in London for like, I don't know, like 13, 14 years at this point. Um, And I wanted to relocate out of London. And that's when I moved to become a startup head teacher. And I opened a secondary school and then the next year I opened a primary school. And that was just a fascinating journey, like project managing a school from start to finish, like from branding to fruition, all the staffing, all the children um it seems like a distant memory now it was so full-on it was so intense for those three years and then I stepped out of headship last year and kind of took a stop like turned 40 I'm a head teacher I'm working really hard I'm passionate about what I do but is this is this the end game um and I decided it wasn't so I did a segue and went sideways to work in a university for a year but I've actually just in the last four weeks gone independent so I am now rebranding myself as a leadership development facilitator slash consultant, and that's enabling me to do the diversity and inclusion work, which is sat outside of my day job for a long time. But I want to make my side hustle my main hustle, is what people have said to me, <laughs> um, because I feel like it's a piece that needs to be done um, strategically for the system.
0: Brilliant. We'll, we'll hopefully come come back to some of those themes that you mentioned throughout. And I, I'd like to start off with you become an executive head teacher at Aureus, which you briefly mentioned. And there you were able to start from the ground up, which you spoke about bringing it all the way. So how did this look and empower you to create a values-led school?
1: um it was really interesting like i've like i said i've always worked in school improvement where you go into a school as a leader and things aren't right and you need to fix them but you tend to go for the quickest direct route because you've got a cohort of year 11s who need to take their exams so that kind of school improvement that's so key stage four focused and as soon as the year 11s leave in may you then start focusing on the year 10s and you never really go down to like properly pick up the stones at key stage three so when i took on the startup headship i I did think it was an amazing opportunity to think differently and we spent a lot of time when I recruited my staff in the uh, like February March time the prospective SLT and I spent quite a lot of time together so like we had weekends at my house with like flip chart paper just like big picture thinking and that kind of like having a white piece of paper to think about what are we going to do differently to get different outcomes and the kind of the language we used to frame it all was how can we be like proactive and preventative and preemptive as opposed to reactive and responsive because i do think i've been in that knee-jerk school leadership for quite a lot of my career um and it's always kind of there's an issue with this let's fix it it's not really getting to the root of the problem so for example mental health and well-being being such a massive piece nationally i've worked in schools where like you get kids who, who have anxiety in year nine or start self-harming in year 10 and like get, it gets quite extreme and quite intense as you build up to the exams and they get like a six-week course of yoga Um, whereas we wanted to build a toolkit for year sevens where every child did mindfulness every child had breathing techniques every child had relaxation relaxation techniques and we built this self-care toolkit so that when they got to a stress point in year eight year nine year ten it was a universal entitlement it wasn't that you are the small group who needs this um so that was a real cultural decision we made um the controversial decision which I didn't think was controversial at the time was our food policy so we had a policy around family dining around every child having a hot meal every day no packed lunches as a PE teacher you know Darren like just the the absolute nonsense that gets packed into pad lunches, and just the processed food. And we had a very vulnerable um, cohort, but also a very high SEN cohort. And like you could just see post lunch, like what the kids would have been like if they'd had a fizzy drink and processed cheese and dodgy bread. So we had a pledge to like relationships in the building, but also like high quality food to fuel them. Um, so they, so they were the decisions we kind of made around um, culture. Outside of the classroom. Within the classroom, we made decisions about not setting and not streaming and having a quality first teaching approach and inclusive teaching practice, which really challenged my staff. Like we'd all worked in setting environments before. And it's a completely different pedagogy, isn't it? When you're teaching 30 kids with a range of abilities and our top end and our bottom end, were qu- it was quite an extreme gap. So that was an interesting thing to grapple with. Um, And then we also thought about our pastoral programs and, like, we thought carefully about the language we used. And I feel like tutoring is something that gets done to children. And we reframed it as coaching. And, again, leading to your PE um, context here, like, I know how powerful coaching is in the PE world and the relationship you have between a coach and a team or coach and an individual. And it's about performance and potential and progress. So we reframed our pastoral program as a coaching program and we flipped it. We didn't have it in the mornings. Like as a head of year back in the day, I know the kids I wanted to see in the mornings were the kids who were late. And then you didn't check their uniform and you didn't check their, their equipment. So we put our coaching at the end of the day. So there was that buffer and it, at, at the end of each day, the children came into their coaching group and met their coach and they could process and decompress the day. The other reason I, we did that was it then heads off the child having something that happens at break or lunch and going home and the parent picking up the phone and shouting at the staff and you don't even know what's happened. So because the, the coaches were the last people to see the kids before they left, it just helped facilitate a conversation and process some of the day so that we could deal with it or we could head it off before the parents got our case. So we just, like, all of those decisions were quite small individually, but mm-hmm. collectively it created a very distinct culture. And then going back to part of the original question around the values-based education. So I had met quite a lot of the VBE team um, through my various networking over the years. And I understood the premise of VBE, but I saw it had a big footprint in primary and there weren't a lot of VBE secondary schools. And I think it's because of the scale of introducing it at secondary. And when you've got like 80 teachers and a couple of thousand kids, it's it's hard to strategically make it coherent and cohesive across the whole school. We felt that as a startup school with only one-year group, it was something we could build as the foundations of the school. And it was such an amazing process to go through that we had had Sue, an independent um, VBE consultant, come in and work with my team for a whole day. And when I say team, I mean every single adult in the building. So like my catering team, my site team, my teaching assistants, my admin, my teachers, my senior leaders. And we had this day where we scoped out our values for the whole day. And it was just a fascinating day from a team dynamic point of view, like every adult meeting each other as human beings and really thinking about their sense of identity, their sense of belonging. And then through that day of processing who we are and what shaped our belief systems, we distilled down to a big list of the key values that showed up in each of our lives And then I, as an English teacher who likes spreadsheets, um, put all the words into a spreadsheet and grouped them by synonym and distilled them down to what our core values were. And as someone who's quite sort of like, I like a a nice pattern or trend, I decided to do 12, like one for each month of the year, um, pillars throughout the whole year, which we then would spiral every year. And it meant that when we presented back the key 12 back to the staff body, they could see themselves in at least three or four of them. And we then became kind of gatekeepers for different um, values. And the values became embedded in our whole way of being at the school. So it wasn't that we had a values assembly or a values rewards assembly. Our values showed up every lesson, every scheme of work, um, every parental communication. So like it was really powerful when your rewards are based on um, children embodying values, but your consequences and your sanctions are your child has contravened the value of. You can't. You don't get much argument back from parents when your parents have chosen a school because they're aligned to the values. They want you to embody the values in their children, and when their child's not meeting the school's expectations around values, it kind of dissolved the whole argument. Um, so it was. A, it was a really fascinating journey to go on as a new head, as a new team, as a new community, and the values really were the kind of the glue that held us all together, but also. We used the language because we were a steam school of it being the dna in our school and it was our usp but it really was kind of like in the fabric of who we were mm,
0: that's fantastic i like how you, i like what you said there about kind of about parents buying into the the values of the school and then contravening the values and, and how it kind of kind of was right through the fabric of your school and could be heard and seen every day and it's that's wonderful and you've also i've, I've Look through, look through your, your LinkedIn and, and your blogs and all that. And we're going to cover a few of the topics, but we're going to stick with, with work at the Aurea School for just now, if that's okay. And you said that the school was values-led, what we've discussed, and was also passionate about creating rights-respecting global citizens who are change agents for social equity. How did you and your teams go about that?
1: Um, so it was it was something we made a distinctive part of our offer um, I've got a real thing about it. I've worked in schools that are out of a city they're quite white and you've got children who perhaps haven't been exposed to different cultures I worked in a school in Kent where the kids don't have passports they it hadn't been to France I worked in London and South London at a school where the kids hadn't seen Big Ben um, so doing coming to South Oxfordshire it's a very different clientele very different community to what I was used to a lot of my team had uh, moved from elsewhere in the country to come and join me I had a very, very diverse staff body because we led with diversity. It created a very safe environment for diverse staff to come and work with us. And we had this pledge to creating global citizens. So the language of British tolerance, British values, really jars me. Who the hell wants to be tolerated? Um, And British values does not embody the fact that we've got a diverse and rich community across the country and beyond. So we talked about global human values Um, what it meant to be in our town but in our region and in our country and then obviously pre-politics in the Europe um, and then sort of like beyond and it was that thinking about like what who you're all ambassadors for the school, but what kind of human beings are we co-creating? I was very clear with the parent body that we weren't an exam factory. Um we would teach them well and they would do well, but I wanted the kids to leave our school with a sense of belonging, a sense of identity, a sense of purpose, kids who can look you in the eye, shake your hand, hold a conversation, use a knife and fork. Like all the basic things but I think have been lost in some ways in some of our schools. Um So we did particular things, for example, like all the statutory bits you have to do, all the acronyms, um, PSHE, SRE, all all those bits and pieces. Um, My deputy head very cleverly wove it all into one programme. So we had global citizenship lessons where we had a five year programme, year seven to year 11, um, a weekly slot it thematically linked to what was happening in assemblies, what was happening in coaching time. Um, it all it all had a meaningful sense-making journey where it wasn't bolt-on days or standalone activities. It was a seamless progression. And into that we we interwove the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, um, and quite a few of them spoke to our values anyway. Um, so we so we then demarked the kind of the SDGs around our school. So for example, like the poster around um, right, right to clean water, access to clean water was next to our water fountains. So we we used the visuals to signpost around our school um we had a big focus on diversity and inclusion and gender equality so we, we we harnessed um them and leveraged them and it just became part of our of our language our culture um and we then established partnerships with organizations in a meaningful way so for example there's a brilliant organization called lufter they um, they are a Finnish company. It's a brilliant digital storytelling platform. And they came in and did a day with us. And we did a day on, like, thinking about how we could use VR to access other stories and experience how someone else lives. Um, I used to do some work with... Um, Oh, the, the names has come out of my head. Will come to me in a second. It's an FGM charity um, from London. I got them up to come up for the day, and they are university graduates who come and volunteer in schools. So we, so we kind of, like, we got the statutory bits in there, but we framed it under the umbrella of global citizenship. And then when, when our young people, when our student council, for example, did assemblies, they were so powerful. So our assembly model was: we'd have one theme, one value for four weeks. And four members of staff would do a different perspective on the value. But once every cycle, the Student Council would do one. So in March, it was our value of equality. And I did an assembly about gender equality. Someone else did uh, an assembly about um, period poverty. And then the Student Council did an assembly. And it was just one of those moments I'm never going to forget in my career, where a year seven boy announced the assembly to the hall and said, like, guys, I know we're here to talk about equality, but actually we should be talking about equity. I'm like, you couldn't hear a pen drop in the room and all the staff were, like, fist-pumping at the back. And he then went on to tell his whole year group of Year 7s the difference between equality and equity and why actually social equity is what we should be striving for not equality and it's just so powerful like I'm excited to see those young people be 18 year olds 21 year olds and go out to the big bad world and become the politicians of the future and become the community leaders of the future that's where my hopes and dreams are in 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 the in the impact they're going to have in their communities as as change agents in the future
0: Oh, definitely. I love that. I love that story about the, the child talking about equality and equity. That is everything we want out, out of our schooling. So that's a wonderful anecdote. Um, kind of moving away from, from audience and more into kind of what's happening just now. Now more than ever, what the education world needs is, is values. So why will values help us navigate our current situation?
1: Good question. So I think part of the problem with what's going on in the world right now is the fact that we're focused on what divides us and what the differences are rather than what what unites us and for me values are a a human currency and a global currency and like it's been fascinating I've gone to other countries and talked about gender equality and you realise that actually doesn't matter what faith you are what coach you are what country you're in gender equality gender equality Um, and I think that's just one example when it comes to values it's it builds bridges, it builds understanding, it creates empathy. Um, and I think the world is so topsy-turvy at the moment. And we have been having the same dialogue for a very long time. And I think what's going on right now with Black Lives Matters has just really put a spotlight on what the work we need to do when it comes to diversity and inclusion in society and i think because we are all in lockdown and because it is also prominent on social media you can't escape it mm-hmm. i think normally you can put like you could put your head and pretend it wasn't going on but you can't right now because everyone's trapped in their homes and it's live streaming on every social media so you can't then be ignorant and pretend you don't know it's happening and i think It's given a real sense of agency to a lot lot of my network where I'm seeing people be a lot more vocal on social media, a lot more challenging, um, a lot more kind of like agency around blogging and speaking out. And I, I do, I hope, I very much hope we're at a bit of a tipping point where I'm seeing people who have been silent for a long time stepping in and joining the conversation. Um, and I think part of the problem from what I've heard from a lot of my um, network is that there's been a resistance to acknowledging it, but there's also been a resistance to getting involved in the conversation. Responsibility is our world, our our humanity, our society, and we all need to play our part um, and we all need to improve the state of things for everybody. And we need to stop shirking that responsibility. Mm-hmm and i introduced a kind of part of it around white white privilege and white fragility and it's upset people and so it should because racism upsets people and actually like i shared something on linkedin last week about the fact that like we seem to be more upset by people calling out racism than we are about racism itself Mm -hmm. that is just so warped um so i feel like the values piece is the the hope the solution the, the light that will hopefully um, sort of like help us all move through a very disruptive and difficult time. So in
0: 2018, you wrote a blog post titled Authentic Leadership Relationships Matter. How do they hold the space for a school's culture and ethos to grow, learn and flourish?
1: I can't remember the particular context of why I wrote that blog, but um, authentic, authentic leadership and authenticity is something that, that has come up a lot in my leadership career. And I think going back to the word privilege, I think I've probably taken for granted the privilege I have as a straight white woman. Um, And yes, we can gripe as women that there's systemic barriers for female progression and flexible flexible working. And, And that is that is there. However, working with a diverse workforce in every school I've worked at, I've become more and more aware of the fact that I can show up to work and be me every day. But some of my colleagues can't. And it was actually when um, I became head, and my deputy head um, made a comment to me one day about the fact that it was the first school where she felt comfortable to share her sexuality. And I'd, I'd always worked in schools where people had been openly out, but she she had worked in schools, predominantly boys' schools, where she didn't feel it was a safe space t- to be out with the students. And she asked me whether she could do a, a coming out assembly at school. And I said, to her, I don't want to, her to feel like she should have to, but she wanted to as part of her rite of passage and to then give permission to the young people. And it, it was such a powerful assembly and it, it was very emotionally charged. And I could see a weight lift off of her shoulders post that. And I think, I think that's what I mean about taking for granted that when you have got a protected characteristic or multiple protected characteristics um, or a part of your identity, you're not sure that it's gonna be fully accepted. It means that every day your time and your energy it's being spent on hiding a part of your identity as opposed to turning up and presenting your whole self. And I think that burden, that weight, um, that a large portion of my network have had to deal with something i wasn't mindful of and it was something that i wasn't wholly appreciative of until i spoke to people until i've done a lot more reading and a lot more talking and just listening about what it's like to be an lgbtqi teacher in the education system what it's like to be a, a black or brown man or woman in the in the system what it's like to be a black or brown woman who's gay or bi in the system and just that intersectional um part of your identity so i think my blog was probably about that and probably about um how we show up at work and showing up at work or showing up in the arena is Brené Brown language around sort of like our ability as educators to embrace vulnerability. And that's something that I have really led with in my leadership journey that I've worked in schools where you're not supposed to have emotions. You're not supposed to be vulnerable. You're not supposed to be human. You're supposed to be a robot. You're supposed to just rock up, do your job, not care. Um, I've been told I care too much. I've been told I cry too much. I've been told I get too invested in the children well, that's who I am as a human. And that's also who I am as an educator and a leader. And yes, it might have its tension points at times, but it's also part of the value I bring as an educator and a leader. And it was something that I we spoke a lot about as a school, about like meaningful relationships with each other and the children. Um, all my staff were trained on fierce conversations. So we had a fierce coaching culture for the staff. Um, we also had a restorative coaching model for the children, and it was it all came down to the relationships and how you invest in the people in the building because then when things go wrong you've got the relationship to go back to and you've built that relationship and you've invested in it, and that then holds you and helps you get through the tension points
0: thank you so much for for referencing that um I'm also going to move on to another blog you wrote that was number 23 in your daily writing challenge. So it's a little bit little bit more little bit more recent. And in that, you blogged about trust. So kind of moving on from, from relationships, how do we create a culture of trust in our schools?
1: See, I think one of the biggest deficits in education is trust. Um, and I, I go to a lot of events and I, 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 I go on a lot of panels and I, I love talking at events because I love them sitting and listening to other speakers. I think it's a real privilege to just sit with people with so much experience and expertise. And I wrote that blog before an event I'm going to talk about, but I was at an event a few weeks ago. It was a collective ed event, and there were five of us on the panel. Um, and we all had prepared separate inputs, but there was a kind of a golden thread that pulled our five pieces together. And it people talked about autonomy, people talked about wellbeing, um, people talked about coaching. But it all fundamentally came down to trust. And doing that goes back to what I said a minute ago about, about relationships. I mean, I feel like the trust in the system has gone both ways. Because I can remember being an NQT and RQT, early career teacher, where I was allowed to go off-site at lunchtime. I was allowed to go to the pub for lunch on a Friday. I was allowed to take my PPA home. Um there was trust in me as a professional that I wasn't going to do anything inappropriate as the as my career progressed and as the system became more intense more and I think really as the accountability measures got maxed up maxed out, I feel that that's where the trust has been squeezed out of our system, and it's something that I had to recheck really myself on because you realize how institutionalized you become. And you become a product of the schools you've worked in and I've worked in low trust environments so then that's obviously shaped my leadership identity and it's something that where I then had to step back and go against my intuition sometimes because some of the things I've done in previous schools might seem like I don't trust my team and I did trust my team but going back to the fierce conversations, that's where I had an SLT who did challenge me. Like we we had passionate conversations um about what we believed in and how we held each other to account and and how those values um became part of our fabric of who we were. And there's lots of quotes I use when it comes to values in particular, but Mary Myatt talks about um lived values rather than laminated values. And I think a lot of people talk about trust and Teach autonomy and well-being but it doesn't doesn't really happen um and i think when you look at the kind of the fallout from the education system about well-being and mental health quite a lot of that comes down to trust or lack of as well
0: it certainly does and kind of thank you very much for that again it brings us on to, to some of your what we called at the start side hustles so um could you share a little bit how diverse educators came about and how is it influencing the conversation in education just now
1: Sure. So diverse ed is a, a byproduct or a sibling of women ed. So five years ago, I was one of the seven founding sisters of women ed, um, which has now gone on to be a 30,000 strong community. Um, and we've obviously got the book. Um, off the back of women ed, BAME ed came next, um, then came LGBT ed, and then came disability ed. So we saw a kind of a succession over three years of grassroots communities movements in response to protective characteristics in the system. Going back to that same deputy head who did her coming out assembly, um, she came to me in my first term of headship, and she said to me like tongue-in-cheek, it's getting ridiculous, I can't go to four Saturday events this term. And I said, like, what are you on about? Because my SLT thought I was psychic, and they quite often started conversations like that. Um, and I said, what are you on about? And she said... Um, like, I can't go to women ed because I'm a woman, BAME ed because I'm Asian, LGBT ed because I'm bisexual, and disability ed because I've got a hearing aid. It is ridiculous. Like, I don't, I should have to chop myself up into four parts. So, we had a conversation about what we could do, like, what solution could we provide? And that's where the concept of diverse ed came from. That we, my SLT, all had different networks based on their own identities, and we wanted to bring it all together. And also get it out of London because quite a lot of these events always happen down south in the in the big smoke. And we wanted other people to get access to it. So uh, four Januarys ago, we launched the first event, and like 250 people came to South Oxfordshire on a Saturday in early January, and it just created it forged links really across those different communities. And we how I curated the schedule was you could go like linear down the schedule and go to four Marinette sessions. Or you could go diagonally and go to one session for each of the grassroots networks, or you could go to sessions that were more um, sort of like intersectional and explored multiple ones. We had sessions on governance, sessions on recruitment, sessions on flexible working. It was just a real smorgasbord of of lots of different opportunities. Um, We ran that for two Januarys running, and then I left Headship, so I didn't have a school then i went out to some partners um in slough who i did a lot of work with they offered to host us so we kind of moved it around and then it's due to take place this saturday in liverpool it was supposed to be our first north event obviously we can't go to liverpool this saturday so we flipped it into being a virtual event and i think it's going to well, it has we've got 650 people booked um we don't get 650 coming to a face-to-face event and it's it's built the accessibility in for people who wouldn't necessarily travel or or kind of like move around the country or people who don't know whether it's the right space for them can now dip in in a virtual way mm-hmm. so that's kind of the the pretext and the journey to where we've got to it is about not being a competition like they've all got their own thing going on those different grassroots movements but it's about helping to pull the golden threads together um and make it cohesive and coherent so we we just work with all of them and i say we it's a very loose way like it's me and people who come to the events like we're not an entity in itself yet but there are plans for what it's going to manifest into um and really the conversation which i mean it's been interesting again leaving headship i've always been quite vocal I've always been quite candid. Um, I found my my tweeting voice about eight years ago, blogging voice about five years ago. Um, And I gave license to my staff. They were allowed to tweet and blog and talk at events because that was part of how we attracted the right people to come work with us. So we were really, really outward facing. So we've led with diversity inclusion as our our brand, as our USP, as, as our core values. And it means that we've got a very diverse network around us and that has slowly began to infiltrate other spaces so like the more formal networks the more white spaces the more male spaces the the more the spaces where perhaps these things come up as an afterthought rather than as the core conversation and for the last three years the conversation has got louder and bigger but with what's going on in the world right now again you can't escape this conversation right now and I think we've got schools and school leaders paying attention who perhaps have ignored this or neglected this for a little bit and that's not a critique, everyone's very busy and everyone's got their own priorities in their schools but really if we get the diversity and inclusion piece right in the system for our staff for our communities and for our children and if it's meaningfully built into our culture but also into our curriculum, we can really make a difference long term mm-hmm. to the societal fallout of what we're seeing
0: we certainly can and and now now more more important than ever we really need to give voice to, to that diversity and and and, and sorry <laughs> inclusion like you like you said there so thank you for that and go go back a little bit you mentioned Women ed and Women ed has grown rapidly since its inception could you share what led you and your pre- peers to begin this movement
1: it, um, it was interesting. I, I can remember it as clear as day, it was um, the last weekend of the Easter holidays five five years ago, and it was April. Um, and back then, there was this brilliant blogging platform called Staff Room. It's gone now, but Pex McRae and some of his buddies set up this brilliant blogging platform. It's where a lot of us found our blogging voices. It's a very safe space. Um, and there'd been a succession of blogs, and I think the first blog had come from Helena Marsh, who had been to a conference, um, for women leaders which Jill Berry had spoken at and there'd been an article by one of the female heads who had contributed in the local in the national press and it was it was one of those one of those headlines that provoked um it, it was kind of like a, a what glass ceiling type type um headline and it just really jarred a lot of us because we were like there was a glass ceiling in education like we we know there's a glass ceiling in education so um the, kind of, the blogging conversation spiralled and a load of us went online and wrote blogs. And the staff room model was like you wrote the blog, but the dialogue underneath the blog was as important. Like, I used to get like 200 comments on my blogs and, and people were going back and forth and having a discussion about something that was my stimulus. Um, so seven of us came together via staff room and just said, like, we need to harness this energy. Um, we need to harness the fact that we're all saying this isn't right. And we want to be part of the solution, so we then arranged to meet face to face. And I think like six weeks later, we got together, had a chat about like what can we do. And at that point, we were starting a Twitter handle and a hashtag. Like let's just start the conversation, light touch. (laughs) We started the Twitter handle. We put a tweet out. We're thinking about organising an event. Microsoft jumped on it, offered us a free venue. We ended up at Microsoft HQ, um, central London. It was fully funded, free food, free venue, free staff, and it suddenly got very big and very real. Um, and in the October, we like we mobilised. I think it was two hundred and twenty people the first year, and just the the powerful energy in that room. I, I liken it to your question, anyone about the values of my school, when um sir john donford came to my school he said the values were powerful oh and that's such a good compliment and i feel like it was similar like it's a, a similar kind of physiological reaction that in that space at that first women event the energy was so special it was the, it, the the values were so powerful and it really felt like something really important was coming together um and off the back of that it was just a bit of a floodgate really like the doors opened and we got loads of volunteers wanting to help loads of people wanting to host um, and that snowball has got bigger and bigger ever since and has taken us to different countries to books being published um, I stepped back uh, a couple of years ago because I was I was a busy head and I also felt like it's one of those things that you can pass it on like other other women can step up into the breach and it can become their journey for a couple of years and it's become a real um, just a community that keeps giving really
0: certainly and Kind of the, the, the tagline that, that I see a lot is is this 10% braver. So could you share how it's empowering women in education to be 10% braver?
1: Yeah, see, so the 10% braver, it it, um, it relates to the marginal gains um, model from the Olympic um, cyclists. It, Sue Carolee, um coined it at our first event, but she always gives homage to her friends who actually came up with it. Um, and it was just that thing about... like. We're not asking anyone to be 100% braver. We're asking you to be 10% braver. And everyone can be 10% braver. And you pick something to be 10% braver with and you flex that muscle and then you achieve that and then you move on to the next thing. And it just seems less less dangerous, less courageous, less scary, I guess, to do the marginal gains, the incremental. And it could be 10% braver having a conversation about flexible hours or negotiating a salary or applying for an internal promotion or, or bigger things because what your 10% braver is is different to my 10% braver, depending on where you start from. Um, And it's just been a a way to nudge people on and out of their comfort zone um, and to have a bit more confidence because like the language we talk about is things like the the inner critic, the imposter syndrome, all these societal things that hold women back. Um, And it just gives you permission to lean in um, to opportunities. And we we used it as one of our um, mantras at school. So... When I wrote the Ode Homily, that was a, um, a prayer, a reflection we read at the end of each assembly, and it was the twelve values in a piece of prose. Like our final statement was, we encourage everyone to be ten percent braver, and it, and it was one of our mantras. And the kids loved it. The parents loved it. Like my mums were like, I wish I'd been ten percent braver at school, Miss Wilson. And it just became, it's just, it's just such a sim- it's a, such a simple concept, and it's just
0: really caught on. No, it certainly is, isn't it? And I love scrolling through my Twitter, and you see someone have been ten percent braver, and produce a blog and you go and read the blog and it's just so wonderful to to read and share and and, it, and that movement has just helped them share it so it is a, a wonderful wonderful contribution to to especially my my twitter and the echo chamber that I live in there so thank you
1: oh i love it thank
0: you <laughs> um, moving on then the recruitment retention talent spot and succession planning are recurring themes for the woman ed community And I said to you off air, I spoke with with Emma Turner about flexible working. Are our schools now offering flexible working opportunities and what can we do to encourage more to do the same?
1: So flexible working has become a a passion of mine because it's what I'm doing my master's um, thesis on and it's been really fascinating doing research. It's it's one of those things that I have enabled flexible working but now I'm someone working freelance and applying for jobs. I've applied for a few jobs and asked for part-time and been told, it's not a part-time job and i, I was like oh wow like I, i'm now on the receiving end of that door being shut in your face um so there's been like as a spin-off of women there there's now lots of different um communities that are looking at flexible working so there's the shared headship network there's maternity cpd um return to teach um i'm sure i've forgotten one there there's four all together um oh flexi teacher talent um and all those different organizations have a different proportion of the community looking at particular barriers Um, but for me the biggest thing about flexible working is the system still sees it as a retention tool rather than an recruitment tool and it's, it's also seen as being a gendered thing that flexible working is for women flexible working is for mothers Flexible working is to keep women in the system, and that's all well and good. It has its place um, because we know the data speaks volumes. We've got like two hundred fifty thousand qualified teachers in the country who have left our schools because they've been denied the opportunity to work flexibly, or to, they've been told like you can't be TLR if you work point six, which is crazy. So there's, there is that piece that's really important. But what we did was we led with uh, flexible working as our recruitment model. So we just felt that but actually as a startup school we could model the fact you can do things differently for the staff as well as the students so i put in every single job spec um and advert and detail about the job that we we, we were open to and welcomed application from flexible workers and we had a, a significantly larger um, and more diverse group of people applying. And not just women. So I had a male assistant head teacher who was point 0.8, because one day a week he's a consultant. Um, I had a point 0.6 art teacher who wanted to do studio time once a week. Um, I had a point 0.8 uh, music teacher who was returning from mat leave and was changing schools in mat leave. So it enabled people to be leaders, but also to pursue their passion projects. And I think actually where we're at as a system right now is that we have got whatever word you want to use like a lot of teachers who are also entrepreneurs teachers who have got areas of specialism they want to share and to have a job where you can work a few days in the system and a few days across the system will actually probably keep people in schools or in the system for longer but it also helps people cascade and share best practice um so that's kind of the nuts and bolts of it all, I I think some of the biggest barriers really are still the mindset in schools. And we ran a free event um, at Orius a few years ago where there's a brilliant um, timetabling company called Edval. And they basically offered to come to the conference for free and train 120 women how to timetable. Because the biggest blocker for a flexible timetable is the timetabler and like literally the the guys gave tips like befriend the timetabler work out how he likes his tea what chocolate he likes like go offer to shadow him and, and it might be a her but it's usually a him it's usually a maths teacher um, get, like get to befriend that person shadow them and see whether you can go and help shape the timetable because you'll get told that you can't make these things possible you can you just need to have the will to do it um I've worked in schools where the timetable um, cascades and distributes it down where here's the English timetable there are 10 English teachers Hannah you're head of English can you negotiate with your English team because then it's a team effort and it's 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 collective and it's cooperative um and you know that Mary wants to come to work late on Thursdays, but John wants to play football on, on Tuesday afternoons. And and you can then work together to to, to the timetabling. So I think is this, this, it's looking at it through a different lens. Um, it's thinking actually in a abundance mindset, it's two for the price of one, as opposed to a deficit mindset, you're going to be losing half a person. Um, and it's also thinking about how, I think primary... Embrace flexible working more than secondary because it's deemed to be easier to timetable. Job shares are more viable at primary. But from my initial research, if we lead with job shares rather than part-time teachers, that actually removes some of the stigmas because... And I know there's a new platform that's just been launched in the last few weeks, which is a talent matching service for co-leaders. So for me, like we have got a lot of solutions coming into the system. And my final thought about it is that some of the business case, some of the blockers for flexible working has all gone overnight. Because since March, every single person in the country is working remotely. And I, I wouldn't say it's a good proxy. I wouldn't say everyone's working flexibly, But it has shown that we can do it if we have to. Within a few days' notice, meetings are flipped, CPD is flipped, people are working from home, people are working collaboratively. So actually, if we can harness some of the best practice and hold on to that as part of our working practices moving forward, we should hopefully implode the business case for why we can't do it.
0: Mm, Certainly, and I wholeheartedly wholeheartedly agree agree with that, that we should be using this time to learn from it and not go back to the model we used to have, but go back to a better model. So so thank you. And my last question, before we move on to, to what I call my final three, we've, we've explored so much of your work and we've kind of flown through a, a few things, but my, my last one is, is, could you share a little bit about your hashtag daily writing challenge and, and share how this is supporting you and many others during this pandemic? Sure. So um,
1: it's it, it was interesting in early March when we were going into lockdown, how... Those of us who had left the system reacted because I've been in the system for 18 years and like, I'm trained to sort out problems. I'm trained to be in a school on the ground with my team. And I did feel a massive amount of guilt in March that like, my old team are down the road on the front line and I'm sat here in my nice little house, in my office, like in my little bubble. Um, and I kind of wrapped my brain about how could I help? Um, my peers, my network, and I came up with a few ideas. So idea one was for the last 12 weeks, I've held peer support circles. So I've got um, seven circles of, I think it's 35 people, and for an hour each day, I I just hold a space um, for people. And I do that for free because they need that and that's something I can give. My second thing was that I have always found writing really cathartic. Um, and as a head, I try to write every Sunday. Um, and it did feel like a chore some weeks when I was absolutely naked and really busy, but it did help me chart the journey of the school. Since I have left headship and since I've left um, school, I've had more time and energy to write. Um, and as we went into lockdown, I was thinking, I'm just gonna put out that I'm gonna write every day and who would like to join me. And all I'm go- and, and from a values point of view, all I'm going to do each day is share a value or a theme that has a value um, linked to it. Um, And we started it back on March the 19th. I didn't at that point realise we're going to be in lockdown for 12 weeks. um, And I'd today be on day 63, because we only do it on weekdays. But it's just really captured hearts and minds. And it's been interesting to watch people get involved at different points. So we have a hardcore group of about 25 in the first few weeks who blog religiously every single day. Some of them lost interest, some of them got busy, some of them had stuff going on. They pulled back, new people came in. Another wave of, of writers started. Some of them left, some of the old ones came back, some new people joined us. And we've now got this community, I'd say it's about 90 people together. Like I, I don't know what the cap is now on one DM group, but I've got two DM groups where each morning I just literally put in, here's the theme for the day. They see where they've got capacity to write, they write, but they then share it in the DM group. So we then have reflections and discussions internally and some lovely friendships have developed and critical friendship and just support in those two groups. And then the blogs go external and other people pick them up. And the feedback has been quite overwhelmingly positive about it's been like I call um, values work, like it's been a bit of a lighthouse or an anchor. It's helped people just like really anchor in to who they are. It's been a time of reflection and it's given people chance to stop and pause and be still and think. It's giving people time who don't want me write to write, but it's also giving people the chance to develop their voice and find some confidence. Um, and Schools Week picked it up. I think it was at the end of the fourth week, and they, um, the the editor asked me to write a piece about um, values and how the daily writing challenge was like bringing the values that to the forefront. And that just kind of like brought together all the all those different facets of me and my journey. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just, it's just been interesting. And honestly, God, like I've written a blog every single day now. Um, in our 13th week and it's become just a daily habit for me. And I can write really fast now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, <that's> so, so, <laughs> it's wonderful. You're developing that habit and just getting so automatic and proficient at it. That's yeah, brilliant. absolutely. <laughs> that's brilliant. Well, thank you for that and 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 i've i've not been involved in 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 the blogs but i've certainly read a a lot of them and and unpicked them and self-reflected so so thank you for starting that and and it it has been wonderful and hopefully 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 people continue to to share what they write and and so on but before we move on to to my final final three hannah could you share with with listeners where they can can find you online how they connect with you and of course share a little bit about how your side hustle is now your main hustle
1: Sure. Okay. So um, how you can find me online. I very much um, have embraced LinkedIn and I try and get lots of educators on LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn is brilliant. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, My Twitter handle is ethical leader. I get asked lots why. Um, I was the hopeful HT um, when I was a head and I wasn't hopeful of being ahead. I was, a, I was hopeful in my headship. And when I left a headship, I obviously had to rebrand. So Ethical Leader is my Twitter handle. And my blog is also Ethical Leader. Um, but as I say, I've just started my new chapter. And as of um, May the 1st, I'm now working independently. So I now have my own website, which is quite scary. Um, and my website is just Hannah-Wilson. Um, and actually, if you go to my website, all my other social media channels and my blogs are all hosted there.
0: That's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we're now on to, to what I call my final three, Hannah. It's the three questions that I, that I ask every guest that's been on and, and some of the some of the things they've, they've shared with me has been truly really fantastic and I'm sure what you're about to share will be exactly the same. So my first question is, what book or text has had the biggest impact on your career?
1: On oh, my career? Oh, OK, interesting. As an English teacher, I've got lots of favourite books. Um, on my career, start with why, Simon Sinek it's just a game changer it's one of those books that i i can't think how many years ago i read it um it just completely it was that epiphany moment for me about communication and about purpose and every course i run it's the first book we read um so simon sinek definitely brilliant brilliant um piece there around how we communicate as a leader
0: thank you very much my second question hannah is if you could give just one bit of advice to a teacher what would that be
1: Oh God, that's tough. Okay, I I think one of my pearls of wisdom is that there are children who need you in every school. And my wisdom is the fact that I think a lot of teachers get trapped in schools and get emotionally blackmailed to, blackmailed to stay in that school because the children need them. And My heart tells me that no matter what school you're in, or what community you're in, there are kids who need you and don't let any school hold you back and trap you in a role.
0: Thank you very much. And my, my last question is one that, that really fascinates me. And, and it's, what do you think most gets in the way of just great teaching and learning in our classrooms?
1: Politics. Um, I just think we have got people who are not qualified teachers influencing the education system. Um, and I can't think who I heard talk at an event, but someone said at something I went to, we need to... um is aggregate education from politics like the nhs is separate so if health can stand alone and have its own head and it's not influenced by whatever political party and whatever their vanity projects are in the system then education should have the same because i have been that head of english who in july finds out we've got a new government with a new pet project and we've got to be like we the whole schemes of work for september um I don't think our political representation is right at all in the country. And when you've got middle class, middle aged white men deciding what I teach my year sevens who can't spell their own name,
0: I think we've got a problem, personally. Certainly do, and and I wholeheartedly agree, agree with that. And I think that I, I also believe that the education should just be that cross-party ring-fenced thing, and, and controlled by the people that, that know it best. And we have some fantastic leaders in in education like yourself that could certainly guide education in in the in the right way. Um, it just leaves me now to, to thank you so so much for, for giving up your time, we've we've jumped about a lot and we've explored a lot of the things that you say and I do hope that, that people can engage with your blog and engage with you and and, and work with you in the future and, and can harness some of the things that you said so thank you so so much Hannah
1: My pleasure, thank you for having me
0: Thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated Podcast Until next time Teach with joy.